God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of Mark. It's really good to see a little bit larger crowd this morning. I'm really blessed by that. Turn to the book of Mark, chapter 10, as we continue our exposition of this glorious gospel. You know, in every gospel account, if you read it carefully, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will see at some point Jesus teaching that it's an, that the impossible truth that you cannot save yourself. You cannot save your own soul. He, he gets to the fact that we are completely, 100% helpless when it comes to our salvation. So Jesus is going to use the episode with the rich man that we talked about last week to correct some wrong thinking that the disciples have about salvation, which also correct some wrong thinking we may have about salvation. And he's going to speak truth to the miracle of salvation because it is a miracle. So let me read this passage to you. And remember, it's just right after the rich man has walked away sad and dismayed. We're going to start in verse 23 of chapter 10 through verse 31. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Peter began to tell him, look, we have left everything and followed you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more. Now at this time, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for this teaching. And as hard as it is for us to swallow that we can't do this ourselves, and the hard, hard as it is for us to realize we are completely, 100% dependent on you for the salvation of our soul, it is a blessing of grace to realize it. It is a, is a, is a testimony to your glory and your goodness. And we want to see it lived out here, spoken, taught here, and may it reach down into our hearts and show us how we need to be giving you thanks constantly for the salvation of our souls. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You know, the world looks for miracles, looks for the phenomenons out there, the, the great events, the, the impossibilities that have happened. You know, the world looks for them, we look for them. The supernatural attracts us. I've never seen so many television shows about ghosts reality shows about ghosts, documentaries about ghosts. We're always looking for the supernatural. But what we must remember is that the regeneration of a heart to follow God through Christ Jesus is the greatest of all miracles, the absolute greatest of all miracles. And God does it every day, many times a day. So after the rich man has walked away from this scenario in this scene, Jesus uses this, and 
he begins to teach his disciples a very, very strong truth that they just can't believe their ears over. The real miracle is eternal life. Not making the mute speak or the deaf hear or the dumb talk or even raising the dead. The real miracle is eternal life. And so the idea I want to get across to you this morning is that entering the kingdom of God is granted by God only. Him alone. It's without our help at all. And then it's through the gospel that we get that. So how does the impossible condition of a soul become the, the possibility of salvation? Well, there's only two ways the impossible can become the possible. God and the gospel. It's kind of a before and after conversion playing out here in Jesus' describing. Kind of before conversion, it's all of God. And after conversion, there's some things that God calls us to do. So let's look at first the before. God alone chooses who enters the kingdom of God. Look at verses 23 through 27 again. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. So, Jesus turns to his disciples after the rich man walks away. He turns to his disciples and he says something that really disassembles, tears down their Judaism theology. And I'll explain that in a minute. But Jesus is saying that rich and wealthy people are not automatically accepted by God for eternal life. Now, it's, it's a blessing to be well off. It's a blessing to be rich. But, but Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter what you own, what you have, what your bank account looks like, what your house looks like. He's saying, it has got nothing to do with that. See, the blessings of riches is not an indication of God's favor in terms of the kingdom. And that's something that these disciples were taught since they were babies. It's been taught for centuries. The rabbis have taught that wealth indicated God's pleasure. And they were astonished that Jesus would debunk that. He's a rabbi. They called him rabbi several times. But the rabbis have taught over the centuries that if you have wealth, you have God's favor. It's like a ticket to heaven. It's the golden ticket to heaven. But it's not, Jesus says. So Jesus then, he says it again with, with an emphatic and quite literal illustration. He says it again. It's hard for the rich to get into heaven. It's hard for anybody to get into heaven, really. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, a real needle. He's not talking about some gate. He's not talking about some other thing. People have tried to soften it over the years. There's no such existence of such things. He's literally talking about putting the largest animal known to first century Palestine through the smallest hole that's available, a needle. It's impossible. See, the Jewish theology had taught from the beginning that wealth clearly indicated God's favor in this life and the next. You know where they got that idea from? Abraham. Abraham. He got riches. He obeyed God, moved to Canaan, and God blessed him. So they thought, that's how you get to heaven. Get rich. I mean, the same thing happened with Jacob. He fled away from Esau. He gets blessed. Has 12 children. Has all kinds of sheep and goats and everything else. God blesses him, makes him a, a father of many nations. Him and Abraham both. 
they think that's how they have taught that's how you get to heaven is being rich but job really ought to counter all of that okay god had favor on job even when he took everything away from job it should be proof to them that it's not riches that get you into heaven it's faith faith in god see those that are granted access to the kingdom of god had faith given by god and it was credited to them as righteousness so that's how they got to heaven not their riches jesus says that faith saves not riches which is the opposite of what the rabbis have been teaching these guys so this is why it's such an astonishing thing to the disciples this is why their minds kind of blown and it's literally like trying to pull a camel through the eye of a needle that's how impossible it is for a rich person or any person to get themselves into heaven they can't do it it can't be done like i said i've heard the story too of some sort of little gate that was in the walls of jerusalem and they would make camels dump their load and then they would get down on their knees and crawl through there's no such place never existed it never existed some byzantine monk came up with that idea back in the 1500s or 1200s or something it was just like it doesn't exist this is literally jesus saying it's impossible can't be done it's kind of like elephants flying no dumbo is not real okay it's like elephants flying it's impossible and of course the disciples then they give a very typical response and though i know most of us have given the same response then then who can who can be saved who can know they have eternal life if it's not the rich if it's not the ones that look like they've been blessed and touched by god with their pocketbooks it's a very typical response if the rich are not granted eternal life on their merit then how and who can even please god enough to gain eternal life and jesus answers them no one no one can please them please god enough on their own it is impossible for a human to save their soul humans do not have the ability to gain heaven i know that's a shock we don't have the ability to do it ourselves jesus gives them the only way with god with god it is possible with god it is everything is possible with god only god can save a soul god alone chooses who can and will be saved as well he has that authority and many of us struggle with this idea of election but he has the authority to do whatever he wants because he's god and the sooner we accept that the sooner we can get on with life and enjoy the grace of our salvation he's the creator of all of life he has the authority and this is the greater thing he has the power he has the power to overturn and regenerate a soul that has rejected him that refuses to listen to him that hates him that desires to go completely the opposite of what he would have them do he has the power to overturn that god can save that soul he's the only one who can and this is the truth. Every one of us who have trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior are miracles. Miracles of God's power. Miracles of what he's done in our heart. To take our heart, which was running headlong away from God, and turn it around and bring it back to him. That's what he's done. That's the miracle. That's the power to change a soul. And it is by God's grace and it is for his glory. And that's the other thing we struggle with sometimes is we, we just don't like seeing that it's for his glory but it is it's for his glory he didn't have to do it but he did praise god he didn't have to do it and we struggle with this doctrine of election and i know i know it's hard 
Um, but I think Jesus is making it very clear here. Like I said, in every gospel he does at some point. But you know why? Because we've done many impossible things as human, the human race. We went to the moon. We built the computers. We transplant a heart. We even built an artificial heart. I mean, we're, we're amazing what we can do. But never has or never will anyone ever make their soul right with a holy God. They can't do it. We can't do it. It's supernatural only. Turning your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. I want you to watch and follow along, if you can, with this passage. This is why we can't. Paul makes it very clear to the Romans as he's writing to them, the Roman church, so that they can understand and express to the non-believers in Rome what's going on in their souls and why, why Jesus had to come. Romans chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 10 through 18. As it is written, There is no, right, no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All all means all. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, whether you like it or not, that describes each and every one of us before salvation. We were all like this. This is not some Old Testament prophecy pulled forward in the New Testament and applied to some other group. This is us. This is humanity. This is where we were before Jesus Christ changed our hearts. This is where we were before, if you will, turn over to Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. You'll see what God did for us. Paul's explaining to the Ephesians sort of the same thing, only in a little more concise way. And you were dead in your trans trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world. According to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedience, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Love is why God saved us and grace is how. It had nothing to do with us. Nothing at all to do with us. Now, to talk a little specific about why is it so hard for rich people to get into heaven, well, I can give you three reasons probably why. First of all, wealth gives you a false sense of security, a false sense of security. We think we're okay with God because our pocketbooks are full. Our wallets have cash in them. And that's what the Jews were believing. They, they believed that, oh, man, God must love me because I have so much. But Paul counters this in 1 Timothy 6, 17. He says, don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. So wealth gives false security. The second reason wealthy people struggle with finding God is 
their wealth draws their heart to earthly things. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And so wealth puts your heart right squarely in, in planet earth if you're not careful. Not heavenward. Paul tells Timothy, for the love of money is the root of all evil. All kinds of evil, he says. And some have wandered from the faith when they pursued it. So wealth draws your heart away from God because you're now worried about what's going on right here. And the third reason is wealth causes us to be selfish, to pursue our own profit and gain. Whatever we can do to get a little more, a little more, a little more. Not looking to help and aid others with our possessions, but to just get more. You know, Jesus tells a parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Not the Lazarus he raised from the dead, but Lazarus who was a beggar at his gate. He tells this parable, and his point is that the rich man never helped Lazarus. Never helped him. And it illustrates the self-gratification of wealth. But really, you know, these three reasons I just gave you for the wealthy not reaching heaven, it's the same reasons we don't reach heaven. All these things live inside us. All these selfish things, these, these false idols of security we find, I mean, they all live inside us. These are the reasons everyone refuses God. Same reasons. Really no different. Whether you're poor, whether you're average, middle income, it doesn't matter what's in your bank account. We all reject God on some of these same principles. Our hearts are the real source of the misplaced worship. That's the, that's the lesson to learn here. Our hearts are wrong. And only God can change your heart. You're born with it. It's your, it's your destiny. It's your nature. It's your turn. You turn toward it. Only God can change it. Most of the time, we don't even consider God or Jesus until the Holy Spirit shows up and changes our hearts. And we begin to understand. We begin to see the gospel. We begin to hear it. Really hear it. Not just hear some preacher on TV shout at you about it. See, there is no way for any person to enter heaven still worshiping and idolizing anything here on earth. There's no way any person with any other Savior besides Jesus can enter heaven. And this is how it happens. Like I said, only when God sends his Holy Spirit into your life, into your heart, and changes your heart, and you repent of sins, you see, I have erred against God. I have broken and violated God's rules. When you see that, the Holy Spirit shows you that, and you ask God for forgiveness, that's when your heart is changed. That's when salvation takes place. You receive Jesus as the source of that forgiveness. Forgiveness can't come any other way from God except through his son, Jesus Christ. And anyone can be saved by this. And you know, he does this a lots of times, every day. He saves souls. Only God chooses the souls he will save, and he chooses lots of them. It's not, it's not selective in that God's picking out people that are, he likes. It's just God picking. I don't know how he picks, but he picks. And he picks those souls, and he sends his Holy Spirit to regenerate that heart, to turn away from all their wickedness and turn to God. And it's only possible with God. So thank God for saving your soul. Because he didn't have to. Only God grants eternal life to those he chooses. And then he exposes them to the gospel truth. When he changes your heart, you begin to see the gospel for what it really is. And this is kind of the after. Gospel truth calls us, calls those who enter the kingdom of heaven. This is after conversion. Now we're going to read 28 through 31 and we're going to see what 
God is, and Jesus called his disciples to and calls us to. Peter began to tell him, look, we have left everything and followed you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or fields for my sake or the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. I know you're wondering, where is all that stuff he promised? Well, I'm going to tell you in a minute. I'm going to tell you in a minute. So, of course, Peter speaks up. He's got to defend himself. You know, he's got to speak up because that's Peter. I love Peter. He wants to, wants to defend himself. Look, we have left everything and followed you. What do, what do we get? What do we get? Matthew's version of this, he even says that. Well, what's left for us? Now, remember, Peter includes Judas in this too. So the 12 are there, and he's saying, look what we've given up. All of them have been called by Jesus, yes. Jesus said, come, follow me, and they did. So all of them have been called by Jesus to follow. The gospel that Jesus teaches is a selfless surrender when you're entering the kingdom of God. So that's what he's been teaching them. He called each one of them. And Peter believes that they've left everything. They've left everything to follow Jesus. They, they gave up all their earthly possessions and comforts for Jesus. But did they? Did they really give it all up? Did they completely 100% surrender? Let's look at their, their record. Peter denies Jesus three times to avoid imprisonment or even just ridicule. He let some little slave girl talk him into denying Christ. John and James asked for special positions in the kingdom of God. Can we sit at your right and your left? We'll talk about that next week, actually. All the rest of them ran away when he was arrested in the garden. They didn't give up their fear of man. And then, of course, last, Judas clings to his greed in an act of betrayal. No, they had not given up everything. So here's a lesson. Just when you think you've given up everything for Jesus, the gospel will put its finger on something and say, what about that? He's constantly wanting to refine us and sanctify us. So that's the lesson to get from Peter's bold statement. But nevertheless, Jesus is quite gracious and magnanimous when he answers them and tells them, truly I tell you, when he says that, y'all need to pay attention. That's what he's saying. Pay attention to this. Truly, you need to listen to this. He gives them this answer. He lists all the relationships and the possessions they have given up, at least for a time. I don't think they knew how long they were going to be with Jesus. I don't think they knew how long Jesus was going to be around. But, but for a time, they had given up all these things. House, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, fields, all of them for the sake of Jesus Christ and the gospel. They had given that up. They had walked away from it, at least for the time being. And then Jesus gives one of the most wonderful promises, although some of us scratch our heads over it when we read it, but he gives us a wonderful promise, which sounds too good to be true. 100 times? He says 100 times more you'll get back. It sounds like the prosperity gospel, and a lot of people have used this to teach the prosperity gospel, which says if you trust in Jesus Christ, your pocketbook will always be full. Your bank accounts will be well. If you have enough faith, you will be well off. That's the prosperity gospel, and it is a lie from the pit of hell. 
That is not God's promise. That is not. But, but really, this right here is a gospel prosperity promise. So how does it work? Well, these losses that he talks about here, these losses that he lists out here, they're gained back in the form of the church. All of these exist inside the church, the body of Jesus Christ, born of the gospel. See, these 11 men, not Judas, these 11 men will preach the gospel, they will plant churches, and receive many times more than they've given. They will have brothers and sisters, mothers, they will have all kinds of relationships. All the relationships they've given up now, when they follow Jesus, they will gain back many, 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 many more. A hundred times, Jesus says, and I don't think he's exaggerating. Think about it. Every person that trusts Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is your brother or sister in Christ. Your brother or sister. Everyone in the whole world, before and after your life, will be your brother and sister. It's an, it's an incredible thing. And I want you to notice that they, he left out Father in the second list. Because <clears throat> you now have the Father as your Father. So if you've left your father and you don't have a father, you do have a father in Jesus Christ. I mean, in God, through Jesus Christ. God will always be your father. And Jesus even promises all material needs and support will be met inside the church community. That's where it has to be. But Jesus also includes the real cost of these things. The real cost of following Jesus here. Persecutions. Persecutions. Persecutions will eventually kill all 11 men. All 11 of them will be dead at some point, martyred for their faith because they believed. Now, what is persecution? Well, let me tell you what it's not first. It's not ridiculing. Someone making fun of you because you're a Bible thumper or you go to church every week. That's not, ridic that's not persecution. That's just ridiculing. That's just people trying to publicly shame you. Persecution comes from outside pressure to denounce your faith. That's what persecution is. They want you to really give up following Jesus. They really want you to turn over. And it happens every day in countries around the world. Persecution usually takes, a, some, takes from someone or harms someone so that they will denounce their faith. It is intended to destroy your faith. That's what persecutions do. They're intended to destroy your faith. Yet in the end, Jesus reminds them they'll have eternal life which is what this is all about anyway. This isn't about rich and poor. This is about eternal life. This is about eternal life. And in the age to come, you'll have eternal life. That's the ultimate pursuit and gain for this life. And the gospel, the gospel calls us to this. It's the whole reason we believe the gospel is for the next life, not this one. The whole point of Jesus' teaching here is eternal life. Keeping their eyes on the prize Paul talks about that in his letters. Keeping their eyes on the prize, the heavenly mansion, eternal life with God, the creator of the universe. That's the ultimate promise of the gospel. And we got to keep our eyes on it. Let's not get distracted by what's going on in our world around us. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And he sums up this teaching at the end, Jesus does, with kind of an axiom on how it will all turn out when he comes back. He will judge all humanity. Those who are first now will be last later. He's going to reverse all the human values, all the human standards, the way we judge things. He's going to turn it upside down. He's going to turn it absolutely upside down. And Jesus will judge and make right all injustices, all inequities. 
when we see him return. And that's the gospel truth. And we have to hang on to it. The gospel turns everything upside down. You know a great example of that? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Zacchaeus, little guy. I don't know how tall he was. Little guy. Tax collector. Always collecting too much taxes. Sort of like, well, anyway. Um, collecting too much taxes. Always collecting too much taxes. And he wants to see Jesus outside Jericho. And he climbs a tree and he sees Jesus. Jesus asks him to come down. Now, this is a, this is a man whose life was literally changed. Like ours should be. He was cheating people to the nth degree. He was doing everything he could to get more, 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 more. And then he met Jesus. And Jesus changed his life. And he gave back everything with interest. He made restitution to all the people he had cheated. And he declared his allegiance to Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may not have that level of sin as cheating everybody, but we all have sin. And to change means to turn away from it completely, like Zacchaeus did. Make it right, no matter what it costs you. And then here's what Jesus said after that. Today, salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. See, when God chooses a soul to hear and accept the truth of Jesus, that person cannot resist the call. They cannot. When God calls you, you're going to answer. Not like a robot, not like a dog. You're going to want to answer. You're going to come to him. Change will happen and it will be apparent. The 11 disciples, Zacchaeus, Paul, all these others answered the call and never looked back. They did it without hesitation. They did it completely by faith. They couldn't, they couldn't resist the greatest news that's ever been pro proclaimed. It is the greatest news that's ever been proclaimed. There is no better news. There is nobody else out there offering what God offers you, free, eternal life. Their soul could only follow Jesus, and they did. They gave up their families. They gave up their friends. They gave up their freedom. They gave up possessions because they were saved. They gave it up because they were saved, not to be saved which is the way a lot of people will teach and talk about this passage. It's not, that's not what the passage is about. It's about hearts being changed. It's impossible for anybody's heart to be changed without God calling you. So what has God called you to give up? What has God called you to give up to follow Jesus? Is there some possession or some relationship or something in your life that God wants you to surrender? Now, I know that's painful, and I know that many times he's asked me to give up stuff. It's like, you know, I'm white knuckle trying to hang on to it. But I'm going to tell you, this is what I found, and I believe it's the truth. I hope you understand. And you know that if he is asking you to give it up, he's going to give you something way better. Way better. A lot better. And a ginormous better. <laughs> a hundred times better. I hope you know that because he's not, he's not just here to steal from you. He's here to give you abundant life and eternal life. And I'm telling you, whatever he's giving you in return for that, whatever reason he's asking you to give something up, it's for a far better reason. And something much better is coming your way. The other question I have for us this morning is, do we see the church 
not the building, the church, as that repayment that Jesus promised the hundred times. Do we see it that way? Do you see the church as the repayment Jesus says it is? Do you believe that you have a hundred times more now than you did before you were born again? If we fail to see that the church, the church as the promised blessings, we may be in the wrong church. We may be in the wrong place. Another question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, are we that kind of church where people come in the door and they feel like they have just gained people? They've just gained relationships. They've just gained support and help. I hope we're that kind of church. And if you can't see the enormous benefit of having a church family in your life, maybe you haven't given up enough. Maybe you haven't surrendered the things that would make you need a church. Maybe something hasn't happened to make you realize it. See, you have a family in the church that will never leave you and never forsake you. True believers will never do that. You have a family that is based on forgiveness and grace. You have resources to help you with needs and support to get through any recession, any depression, any kind of famine that could happen to us. The church can get through it with one another's help. And we all need to be a little less maybe self-sufficient. That's maybe why we don't see how our church family provides for us. We're a little too self-sufficient. We're a little too independent. We need to be more like that church in Jerusalem in the first century. After Pentecost... 3,000 people get saved. Listen to what they do. This is the church. This is literally the church in Jerusalem. First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. I'm assuming that's probably what it is. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. God saved, the church grew, and souls were blessed. That's the gospel in action. The gospel makes this kind of living possible. And it is better than anything the world's going to offer you. Trust me. Just ask the Chinese church or the Iranian church. They would rather have each other right now in a basement somewhere hiding from authorities than to have a building like this because they know they can trust each other. They know that they love each other and they know that they're there for each other. That's the church. That's the hundred times. So Jesus turned their bad theology about riches upside down into a kingdom prosperity for us through the church. He made the possible, the impossible possible. So everything in Jesus' words here is about eternal life. Don't, don't get to distracted by the riches and all that discussion. It's about eternal life. He shows his disciples and us how impossible can be possible. God alone has the power and the authority to change a soul's direction. And when he does, nothing else is impossible. So let's take some time this morning in our prayer time to thank God for doing the impossible in our hearts, for saving our souls. Let's thank God for that, for giving us eternal life and making us part of his church. And if you want God to save your soul, just ask him to forgive you during this time. So we have a time of quiet prayer, silent prayer. If you'd like to come up to the front and pray, feel free to do that. 
We'll pray for a minute or so, and then I'll close us out. So let's pray.